Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events. Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. Me Martinez. The Biden administration takes a big swing on immigration. Now, among other things, they're proposing a plan that cuts down the time to get citizenship from 13 years to eight. We'll hear if that swing is too big to make a meaningful impact on immigration reform. Plus, how LADA George Gascon plans to break away from his California peers. It's all ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Amy Martinez. Thanks for joining us. Coming up, there are a few L.A. district attorneys who have ruffled more feathers in their first 70-something days in office than George Gascon. We're going to catch up on the latest controversy surrounding the D.A. and talk about what happens next in his reform efforts. That's just ahead. But first, the Biden administration formally unveiled its plan to fix the immigration system in the U.S., an effort that has been long in the making but with little reform to show for it. At its center is a proposal to offer undocumented immigrants estimated at around 11 million people, a path to citizenship and other reforms that would affect asylum and other areas of immigration relief. Now, the implications of this legislation are enormous, especially for all of us here in Los Angeles. But first, it has to pass a divided Congress, and that might be a challenge. Here to tell us about this are Karthik Ramakrishnan, professor of public policy and political science at UC Riverside. Also with us, Marisa Montes, the director of the Loyola Immigrant Justice Clinic clinic at Loyola Law School. Karthik, let's start with you. Uh, This legislation that Biden uh, promised in his very first few days in office, but it's looking specifically at the citizenship path of it. Uh, What does this bill do and who would directly be affected by this legislation, particularly here in L.A.? Thank you for having me. And yes, so this bill um, would legalize an estimated 11 million uh, immigrants in the United States today. And uh, it covers a wide range of immigrants, uh, including the so-called dreamer population. Those are immigrants who were brought to the United States as children. It would include those who have perhaps overstayed their work visas, as well as others who may have overstayed their travel visas. It would include a range of folks uh, in, in various occupations that are very important right now, including farm workers, Uh, those working in other essential fields like warehouse workers. Uh, So this is um, pretty dramatic in scope and scale. And that's one of the aspects of it that might cause some friction as this bill wends its way through Congress. Typically what we've seen in the past at ambitious efforts at immigration reform is that either in the House or in the Senate, in this case it will likely be in the U.S. Senate, um, that there will be some significant resistance to some portions of the law, and the administration will have to think about whether they try to pass it as one comprehensive package or try to break it up into pieces to see if some pieces have viability this year. And Karthik, all those people you mentioned, all those groups, I mean, that is the L.A. area, right? I mean, that is a cross-section of L.A. like any other. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and, and by the way, a lot of people might think of undocumented immigrants only as Uh, Latino or Latinx immigrants, uh, but you have a significant proportion of undocumented immigrants who are Asian, who come from Africa and the Caribbean, 
and even undocumented immigrants from Europe and Canada. Uh, and then that's, I think, important for people to remember that when we talk about the unauthorized or undocumented population, uh, it really spans across racial groups. Now, there are other provisions in here as well for different groups, like those in the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. Uh, Jungwoo Kim is a longtime recipient uh, and is an organizer with NACASEC. And this is what he had to say about why this matters. I think this is really important for our Korean American community in Los Angeles, and that, because K-Town is one of the biggest neighborhood in Los Angeles, and the population keep growing. And there's a lot of undocumented immigrants live in this in the city, and, and they really contribute to Los Angeles. Marissa, those under DACA have been on a roller coaster ride really the last few years, not knowing if they'll be able to stay in the U.S. or, or if they have to make other plans. Can you tell us a little bit more about that group, how many are in Los Angeles, and what's uh, in the bill for them? Yeah, happy to discuss it. I don't know the exact number of DACA recipients that reside in the city or county of Los Angeles, but I can tell you that we are one of the cities that have the highest number of DACA recipients, highest number of immigrants, undocumented immigrants, and those who come from mixed status families. Um, The exciting thing about this bill is that it would open up a pathway of residency and citizenship for DACA recipients, but it's not limited to DACA recipients. Um, the, the proposed bill is very much overarching and would include people who, you know, may have qualified under Obama's DAPA um, proposal that didn't pass. But going back to the DACA recipients, um, DACA recipients would have the, the ability to uh, skip the temporary residency requirement that is um, being proposed, and they would go straight into having their residency. After having their residency, they would actually be able to apply for the citizenship within three years. And Marissa, I, I think if if someone were to look at it uh, at first blush, they might think, well, they're being fast-tracked, but a lot of them have been here a long time. I don't know if fast-track would be the right way to describe that. Yeah, exactly. The majority of people who qualify for DACA have been here in the United States since they were young children, and they identify as, as Americans. Moreover, um, similarly like to TPS holders, they have had some form. DACA is not considered a form of status. It's deferred action, which is basically like the government saying we... You see that you're here undocumented, but you're kind of low-hanging fruit that we don't want to, you're not a priority for deportation, right? But these have been individuals who've been contributing, you know, they, they have work permits, they've been working, they've been attending school, they have really played, um, you know, kind of paid their dues. And, you know, that is why I think they would be one of the first ones to be able to access residency um, and then citizenship. When it comes to those uh, under temporary protected status, there are quite a few people uh, living in Los Angeles. We wanted to ask about that. Uh, so let's uh, hear from Salvador Sanbria about what this bill means for his uh, community. He's a director of El Rescate. That's a Salvadorian-American organization founded here uh, as people were fleeing the Civil War in the 80s. Here's what he had to say. It will really transform the quality of life of Central American families in Los Angeles. So, you know, there is great expectation of what is about to come. So, Marissa, for people under temporary protected status, what's in the bill for them? Similarly to DACA, they would also be skipping the temporary residency requirement and just go straight into LPR status. And then something that I think is very important is that TPS holders have been here for some time. Some have even been here for decades. I especially think of all of my Salvadoran clients who, who got TPS back in the 80s. Um, And the great thing, too, is that in opening the pathway to residency, um, TPS and DACA both have limited um, ability to travel. 
Um, so it's going to also give them the possibility to be reunited with their family members abroad and also just add stability to their communities and their families. Karthik, a little later in the show, we're going to take uh, a look back at the recent history of immigration reform. But wondering how is this proposal similar or maybe different than the policies pursued by past presidents such as maybe Barack Obama? Yes, absolutely. So when you look at this bill, it doesn't have as many of the enforcement uh, provisions that Republicans typically have insisted upon uh, in any kind of comprehensive reform package. Uh, we saw this in 2013 uh, with the with the bill that Democrats in the House uh, in the Senate had advanced. It was a bipartisan bill that the White House supported that had a lot of. Uh, significant enforcement provisions that made a lot of immigrant advocates very uncomfortable. Uh, similar, uh, you saw uh, comprehensive efforts in 2006 and 2007 under the George W. Bush administration that had done the same. So I think in this case, you're seeing uh, the Democratic Party, both in Congress as well as in the White House, trying a different tack, not loading up the bill with a lot of enforcement provisions as well as various legalization provisions, but trying to keep it a little bit more clean this time. Uh, but we'll see. This will has this will have to go through the Senate. And uh, and you, you're already hearing senators reacting by saying that they want to see more enforcement provisions added to whatever is being proposed. Yeah, and this uh, bill by Biden has been called uh, an opening salvo, so to speak, to uh, kickstart conversations around immigration reform. Um, and I think Marisa most would agree that there is no expectation that this will become law anytime soon. So what you make of it uh, at this point? I mean, I know it's we've only had a few hours of it, but what do you make of it, Marisa? Um, yeah, that's something that I've been reminding the community about, because since Biden has been in office, we have been inundated with requests for consultations. I think Biden has brought a lot of hope to the community. And it's been interesting to see kind of their reaction in comparison to Biden versus Trump. Right. Um, but something that I tell the community all the time is that this is only a proposal. This is Biden's idea. And at the end of the day, it's really the legislature that has control over immigration law and passing immigration reform. So what's coming forward under the Biden um, Biden proposal may actually look very different by the time it makes it through the legislature. Um, but I tell community members to remain hopeful and also something that's kind of paid off by their eagerness is that by coming forward to seek consultations, we've actually been able to identify people who qualify for forms of relief under current immigration laws and have been able to move forward at least starting the, the pathway for them, even though, you know, the immigration reform hasn't, um, you know, occurred just yet. Marissa, anything uh, in the legislation you've seen that would affect your clients in particular? Yeah, so um, my clinic services the community of Boyle Heights in East Los Angeles. And Boyle Heights is kind of known as the Ellis Island of LA. And I really think um, in terms of, even though it's a primarily Latinx community, it has gone through the different immigration waves and kind of is reflective of the city as a whole. And something that, you know, people are really focused on this pathway to citizenship, which is great, but the bill also has other reforms that are really going to impact the community. Um, one of the most common forms of relief that we see and that we do here in the clinic is called a U visa. A U visa is for victims of crime. Um, and unfortunately, the undocumented community is usually pretty vulnerable and susceptible to immigration. Um, and this bill actually expands U visa protections to also include individuals who um, might be um, victims of workplace violations, such as like wage theft, sexual harassment. Um, so it's going to expand the U visa and make it accessible um, to many more immigrants. 
um, which is very exciting. The other thing that's really exciting about this bill is that, and that I appreciate about the uh, Biden administration is the focus on family reunification. Um, we service, you know, a lot of mixed families that families that have mixed family status. So meaning maybe an undocumented dad, citizen mom, so on. And Biden wants to eliminate, um, eliminate the backlogs that currently exist in the family petitioning process and is also kind of opening up the way for family to travel in the meantime while the petitions are, are pending. So really excited to see um, our clients being able to reunify with their family members who have been stuck abroad for many years. Yeah, and getting rid of the word alien, too. I think uh, <laughs> that should have been yes, done a while yes. ago, but at least, okay, it's in it's in writing in this one. Karthik, I know that you wrote an L.A. Times op-ed last week making a case for a piecemeal approach to immigration reform. Uh, tell us what you mean by that and, and why you might think it might be more successful than getting uh, a big, giant bill through. Thank you. And, and uh, you know, sometimes uh, we can call it piecemeal. We use the word incremental because of term piecemeal has been used as a pejorative. In yeah, the past. It's a, it has a negative um, connotation. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. So we, we prefer to think of it as building blocks and to think about some of the easier moves that can be made that can build confidence um, and, and that can lead to subsequent reform. And so we point to the state of California. California passed its first version of a DREAM Act in 2001 around the same time that the federal government in the Senate had introduced that proposal. Um, now that proposal was shunted aside after 9-11 and any time people have talked about the DREAM Act, uh, folks on both the left and the right have said, no, we can't just have this hanging out there by itself. It needs to be a comprehensive package. And we've been waiting 20 years for that comprehensive package that has not happened. But we find instead from states like California, New York, Illinois, Connecticut, Maryland, so many others, is that if you continue to chip away at it, you can take it piece by piece, incrementally, and really end up building immigration reform over a couple of decades that you're not able to achieve when you try to cram everything in one go. Finally, I'll just say what you had just mentioned about removing all mentions of the word alien in the federal code. California did this a few years ago. And people, uh, unfortunately, in D.C. don't remember that. The news coverage I've seen doesn't credit California for their leadership in already doing this. So the federal government can learn a lot from states like California and from immigrant advocacy organizations like the California Immigrant Policy Center and various groups like Chirla in L.A. and really advocates throughout the state in terms of the continual wins that they've been able to achieve in a two-decade period. Karthik, maybe because Joe Biden has dipped into California so much for his administration, maybe they reminded him, hey, by the way, you might want to put this in. California's already done that. <laughs> um, Marisa, really quick. Um, okay, so it, it does appear that Joe Biden is at least putting his attention on this early on in his administration. So it appears that, that on that front, he is uh, holding up his end of the bargain uh, that he put out to the American people uh, back when he was a candidate. But what would you need to see from him to feel better that he is actually following through? Oh, that that is a, a very good question. Um, there, there is a laundry list of stuff that I would love to see the Biden administration do. Um, you know, I did appreciate the fact that he came out with his executive orders right away, trying to address some of the immigration, some of the immigration issues, such as the Muslim ban, you know, reinforcement of DACA. 
but I would really encourage him to be a little bit more bold, right? Um, especially in terms of the treatment of, I know that we were talking about immigrants in LA, but the treatment of immigrants at the border and what's currently occurring with the migrant protection protocols and the necessity to actually parole many of the migrants in for their own safety. Um, and, you know, I would like him to to just be a bit more bold and pushy, just kind of the Trump administration was. I really don't think that this is a time for, in my political opinion, to be cordial. Um, I think it's a time to really kind of take the reins and really um, redeem the United States federal government for, for the damage that it has done towards the that's Marissa Montes, director of the Loyola Immigrant Justice Clinic, and Karthik Ramakrishnan, professor of public policy and political science at UC Riverside. Marissa Karthik, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, we heard uh, some of how the Biden administration's uh, big, bold push on immigration reform is being received, at least on day one. But the history of reform, at least when it comes to American presidents and administrations, has had quite a different tone than the one we saw the last four years. We'll get into that when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, Ami Martinez. We've been talking about the bill introduced today by the Biden administration that would create a path to citizenship for some 11 million people living in the U.S. without legal status, among other protections. Now, the thing is, this isn't new. Presidents from both parties have attempted legislation like this in the past, and not much has come out of it. So to hear about the future of this bill in the context of history, we turn now to Luis DiCipio, professor of political science and Chicano Latino studies at UC Irvine. Professor, welcome back. My pleasure, eh? All right. Uh, an ambitious bill for sure, but uh, looking at the contentious landscape in Congress, how would you rate its chances of passing in its current form, the way it is today? Oh, I think in its current form, almost a zero chance. Uh, but the Biden administration chose to go big and bold as a starting point, uh, and that allows plenty of room for compromise. Now, the Senate is attempting to get the Biden coronavirus relief bill passed through a reconciliation. So first, what is reconciliation, Professor, and how could it be used for the immigration bill as well? Reconciliation allows Congress uh, a couple of times a year to pass budget-related bills on a simple majority, so not to have to worry about uh, the filibuster. Um, and they're certainly going to have to use at least one time to, to get the uh, coronavirus uh, aid bill through. It seems to me unlikely that they would be able to uh, turn around very quickly and do significant immigration reform through uh, reconciliation. Because, yeah, the, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, the Democrats would need 60 votes. Otherwise, they, uh, with the reconciliation, they could do the simple majority, as you mentioned. So short of that, short of uh, actually having it be able to pass through as it is, uh, what would a incremental approach or a piecemeal approach look like? What stays in from what we saw today and what gets sacrificed? 
Well, I think the Biden administration has been clear. They want um, some form of legalization, whether it's quite as broad as is offered in this bill um, or as quick as is offered in this bill is another matter. That's certainly something that can be compromised and uh, certainly will, will be um, going forward. Uh, this bill does not have a lot of new resources for enforcement, and that's very unusual. Uh, immigration bills in the past have always been enforcement heavy. Uh, I think the Biden administration um, is open to that. Uh, they have some money for enforcement technologies here, uh, but they'd always be open to some last minute uh, uh, traditional kinds of uh, boots on the ground kind of enforcement. Um, I think they've done a creative thing here and that they've tried to create an incentive for local governments to become an advocate for this bill. Uh, and you might see some expansion of that going forward. So, you know, I think the Biden administration has signaled that they're willing to look at different pieces of the bill uh, as long as they get what the core of what they want, which is a more streamlined legal immigration system and a way to address the large number of undocumented immigrants who have been resident in the United States for a long, long time. Professor, on the enforcement part of this, uh, considering how lean it is in its current form, do you think that was by design? Because that would be something that would uh, have a lot of uh, Republican attention to add some meat to it. So in other words, have it out there lean as a bargaining chip to beef it up, but to get other things. Absolutely. And what they're proposing here is really smart stuff, the stuff that actually works, a uh, technology. But that doesn't always get the uh, support of uh, folks who are concerned about immigration. So at later points, they can certainly add, uh, you know, expansion of the Border Patrol, different sort of resources for interior enforcement. Uh, President Obama did that to great success when he was able to get a bill passed uh, in a bipartisan manner out of the Senate. Unfortunately, it was never passed in the House of Representatives. Now, you know, as I said earlier, we all have been down this road before. Uh, Professor, can you tell us a little bit about some past attempts at immigration reform? And I'm thinking about uh, George W. Bush, uh, you know, that, that stand out to you and why those reforms did not wind up taking, uh, taking effect. Yeah, well, George W. Bush really staked his uh, claim on the Republican nomination on the fact that he was a different kind of Republican. Uh, and one piece of that was that he, you know, coming from Texas, understood the value of immigration and was willing to work with Democrats to pass a, uh, a bipartisan bill. Unfortunately, non, well, unfortunately for many reasons, but particularly unfortunately for, for um, immigration reform, 9-11 came along that shifted folks' attention. So by 2006, when the Bush administration really pushed immigration again, uh, Bush was moving towards lame duck status and uh, was able to get a bill passed out of the Senate, but couldn't convince his Republican allies in the House uh, to pass a bill. So 2006 was a major effort. Um, President Obama also committed to immigration reform, but not his first priority, uh, got around to immigration after uh, health care reform. Uh, he was able to, as I say, have a major success in passing a bill that looks a lot like this one, actually, um, in the Senate uh, with uh, 68 votes. So, you know, about 14 Republicans joined all the Democrats on that in 2013. But again, the House of Representatives was the barrier. One slight thing that's different this time around is the Democrats control the House, narrowly admittedly. Uh, so if a, a bill, if the Senate can agree on a bill, it's likely that the House will go along. On that attempt in 2013, you mentioned the bipartisan support that it got, uh, partly because of the so-called Gang of Eight, four, Repu four Republicans, four Democrats who hammered out the details, but that failed. Um, for this bill, is another gang, for lack of a better word, Professor, needed? Yes, absolutely. Um, on the assumption that this is not going to be able to be passed through reconciliation, uh, President Biden needs to find some Republican allies uh, to uh, get to that, that magical 60. Uh, and immigration, though, 
I think more of a partisan issue than it was uh, seven years ago is still one that can generate some Republican support because immigration also leads to economic development. Uh, and that's very much something that's going to be needed coming out of the COVID era. We're talking to Louis DiCipio, professor of political science and Chicano Latino studies at UC Irvine. Um, professor, this before, as you mentioned, has been a bipartisan effort in the past. What changed? What's the what's the one thing that made it uh, nonpartisan? Or actually partisan, well, I should say partisan, I should say, yeah. If you'll give me two things, let me say the Tea Party and Donald Trump. And though they share a lot in common, uh, the Tea Party um, uh, movement in the Republican, you know, sort of as a faction of the Republican Party, uh, galvanized the Republican base uh, against um, immigration reform. And that made it harder for, well, for the 2013 bill, but even for some of the Gang of Eight. Marco Rubio was in it, and then it was the Gang of Eight, and then he left, and it was the Gang of Seven. Um, Donald Trump also, um, you know, staked his presidential campaign and his presidency on antagonism towards immigrants. And that, I think, inflamed uh, that segment of the Republican base. But to the degree that it still exists, that sort of old Republican economic elite uh, sees the value in immigration and I think could be allies with President Biden in a reform bill. Not this one, but a reform bill. Now, historically, if someone's uh, keeping score, some of the biggest changes in immigration happened under a Republican president. That's Ronald Reagan. He granted uh, amnesty to nearly three million undocumented immigrants. And it was and still is uh, very controversial for a lot of reasons. But in 2021, uh, you think Republicans from states such as California or Texas, which have higher numbers of uh, non-citizens than other parts of the country, be swayed possibly into supporting this Democratic bill? Well, I think uh, most of the most of the elected officials from California are Democrats, so I think they will be strongly um, in support of that bill. Uh, Texas is an interesting story. I mean, Ted Cruz certainly has ambitions for 2024, um, and he wants to sort of reignite the uh, Trump base, so he will be an opponent. Um, John Cornyn, I think, probably could be persuaded. He comes from that sort of older line of uh, uh, fiscally conservative uh, Republican leaders uh, that would see the economic value of an expanded legal immigration, which this bill also includes. You know, as we know, the uh, Trump administration had a very different approach to immigration reform. For him, it was about limiting the number of people who come and live here. And he signed a whole bunch of uh, executive orders to make that happen. Uh, Professor, do you have any concerns about the lingering Trump effects here uh, that maybe will still hold sway in Congress? Well, I see concerns in Congress, but I also see concerns in the executive branch. Uh, Part of what uh, President Trump was able to do was to sort of galvanize uh, the Department of Homeland Security um, around his policies in a way that I think will linger, you know, long after long after his term ends. Uh, I think, uh, you know, certainly there are a number of Republicans in Congress who philosophically oppose immigration. They probably can't be swayed. Uh, But Remember, the goal is uh, not the perfect bill, but uh, 60 votes in the Senate. Um, And that will test uh, President Biden's sort of strength as a negotiator and finding things associated with immigration uh, that Republicans might be able to support and perhaps scaling back some of the very ambitious uh, goals in in this this first draft of an immigration reform bill. Where do you think Democrats have shown a willingness to negotiate on? Well, I'm... Looking back at those bills from 2006 and and 2013, uh, they have indicated in the past a willingness not to provide a path to legal status for all undocumented immigrants um, in the United States. And this bill doesn't either, but it gets much closer to that than previous bills have. 
Um, there's certainly also the possibility of creating a longer period of temporary status uh, prior to the eligibility for citizenship. Some in the Republican Party um, have indicated a fear of today's undocumented immigrants becoming uh, naturalized citizens in as few as potentially 13 years if this bill were to pass tomorrow. Um, so you could lengthen that period. Um, I think Democrats have also been willing to spend more on immigration enforcement. Um, they may not think it works very well, but uh, that doesn't hesitate them opening their checkbooks if necessary to, to win over some votes. Immigration advocates over the last uh, few years have um, have not taken kindly to politicians treating this as a as a political football, then punting it down the road, and then nothing ever happens. So I think uh, while there might be some some excitement over what President Biden put out there today, what do you think would have to happen in the next months, or say in the next year, that would satisfy people that this is indeed something that uh, will have some teeth to it and will lead to immigration reform, something that people have been waiting for for a long time. Well, I think President Biden has has sent some important signals by reversing a number of the executive orders that President Trump had signed with executive orders that President Biden signed. So, you know, so some of those most egregious Trump policies have already been reversed and, and those are being implemented as we speak. Um, the challenge for President Biden uh, to continue that messaging is that immigration is not his top priority. And he's been clear about that. COVID relief and economic development are his top priority. So the question will be, as the nation sort of begins to emerge from the uh, uh, the challenges that are that we're all facing right now, whether President Biden keeps this at the top of his agenda and genuinely tries to get a bill out of Congress either late this year or early next year, because that's pretty much when it would have to be done, um, or whether it slips into the uh, the back half of the Biden administration when the Democrats may no longer control um, either the House or the Senate. That is the big elephant in the room, right? Because uh, there is that COVID bill that he is trying to pass. Would you think this could lead to a, a choosing situation where he has to pick one or the other to get across the finish line? I don't know that if it's a, it's a choosing, the challenge that is that Congress seems to be singly focused um, at any given time. And right now, all of their energy, well, last week, all of their energy was focused on the impeachment, I guess, but now all of their energy is focused on uh, the COVID relief bill and, and minimum wage, which may or may not be associated with that. So the question will be where they, where Congress goes next. And some of that will be guided by the Biden uh, administration, but not all of it. It was DeCipio, professor of political science and Chicano Latino studies at UC Irvine. As always, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ray. All right. Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon has ruffled a few feathers, actually more than a few feathers in his short time in office. And now he's planning to break away from his peers in California. We'll hear all about it when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, I'm Martinez. 
All right, it's safe to say no L.A. district attorney has ruffled more feathers in their first 70-something days in office than George Gascon. Gascon ran as a reformer in the November election and has wasted no time upending the largest local prosecutor's office in the nation. The DA says he seeks to reverse decades of discrimination. Now, his critics say Gascon's policies instead threaten public safety in the very black and brown neighborhoods he professes to care most about. We're going to be closely following what amounts to a revolution in L.A.'s justice system. And who better to help us do that than KPCC's Frank Stoltz. Frank, welcome back. Hey. All right. Let's start with the latest news. I guess going this week, resigned from the association that represents California's 58 district attorneys. Uh, Is that a big deal? You know, it's definitely a deal. Uh, It's slightly unclear how big a deal. Uh, You know, A, the California District Attorneys Association wields a lot of influence in Sacramento. Historically, it's joined with police unions and lobbying for longer prison sentences and blocking reform. And L.A.'s district attorney, given the size of the county, has loomed large in the group. So Gascon's departure could weaken it. In his resignation letter, Gascon called the group solely for the purpose of those willing to tow The uh, line, the tough on crime line was his line. Uh, And he denounced it for having an all white board of directors in a time of racial reckoning. Uh, But maybe a the biggest reason Gascon left his fellow DA's uh, association is because they supported a lawsuit by the union that represents Gascon's own prosecutors against Gascon uh, that has shut down some of his reforms. And I think that was a big deal breaker. We're going to get more into the lawsuit in just a second. Uh, First, though, what was the association's reaction to George Gascon leaving it? Uh, Good riddance, maybe. Uh, Gascon has long been something of a pariah among prosecutors ever since he co-wrote Proposition 47, which, uh, of course, rolled back sentences for drug and other offenses when he was DA in San Francisco. Uh, So the group didn't exactly beg for him to come back, at least publicly. The association president, the DA of El Dorado County, said Gascon's remarks about the group's all-white board were disingenuous since Gascon, he said, ran against board member and former LADA Jackie Lacey, who is black. He also said Gascon's move to leave the organization appears to be a publicity stunt, in his words, to divert attention from his favoring criminals at the expense of victims. Now, uh, Gascon's not the only one who's left that group, right? Yeah, that's true. The Republican DA of San Joaquin Valley left the group last year for the same reason. And both have joined the newly formed Prosecutors Alliance of California, which includes frontline prosecutors and seeks to push for progressive policies. Even Orange County's DA, uh, Todd Spitzer, joined the uh, Prosecutors Alliance. Spitzer built his career as a tough-on-crime guy, but he issued a statement last week in which he said, our society has engaged in a systemic mass incarceration, and we have prosecuted people of color differently, and as DA, he will put a stop to that. And that is uh, that is Orange County's DA, Todd Spitzer saying that. That's a big deal. Now, okay, let's get back to that lawsuit against Gascon by his own prosecutor's union. The judge sided with the prosecutors and slapped a preliminary injunction on the DA blocking some of his reforms. Uh, What has been the fallout on that? Yeah, the judge uh, said Gascon could not order his prosecutors to seek the dismissal of sentencing enhancements filed against defendants in more than 10,000 current cases. He said uh, you have to consider the circumstances in each case 
before asking a judge to dismiss gun, gang, and other enhancements that can add many years to a sentence. So he basically said you can't have a blanket policy, you know, seeking the dismissal in a bunch of cases at once. Uh, Gascon points to numerous studies that have found enhancements play a big role in over-incarceration and racial disparities. Um, Enhancements uh, play a huge role, too, in the plea bargaining process, with prosecutors often agreeing to drop them for a guilty plea or other charges uh, for cooperation in a case. Um, so the enhancements will will stay for now, uh, and they will still play a big impact in, in plea agreements. Now, he's appealing, though. Yeah, he, he is. Um, you know, I, I, I've been told the appeal will focus on three strikes enhancements. The three strikes is a big battleground because the judge said Gascon's office will require to file uh, will be required to file strikes uh, because of the, let me restate that. The three strikes uh, is, is going to be a battleground. The reason is the judge said Gascon's office was required to file strikes. Mm-hmm. Gascon's people point out that DAs all over the state don't file all of the strikes. So this will sort of be a test of that law. And again, the judge said it's likely okay to have a policy that bans prosecutors from filing all other enhancements in future cases. And, you know, one of the interesting things is that a couple of prosecutors I talked to uh, are hugely concerned about the public safety effects of no longer using, for example, California's well-known 1020 life gun law. And people may have forgotten about this. Uh, It was passed 25, 30 years ago during a very high crime period. The law adds 10 years in prison if you use a gun during certain felonies, robbery, for example, is one of them, 20 years if you fire that gun during the robbery and life in prison if you hit someone. And uh, the prosecutors uh, are worried that if you if you don't use that, uh, it'll threaten public safety. And one more thing, some prosecutors are worried Gascon's decision to stop using almost all enhancements will make it a lot harder. Again, we mentioned this earlier, to cut plea deals. You know, so, you know the system has been under a, a big microscope, especially after uh, the George Floyd killing and the massive protests of last year. And there's a tendency maybe to paint prosecutors opposed to George Gascon as insensitive to all these racial disparities, or even worse, sometimes they're, they're called you know racist. But what's the tenor of, of the debate uh, around this DA and his policies? Yeah, I think you hit the kind of the nail on the head. This is a very, very intense debate. Some, you know, social media accuses Gascon of loving criminals. We kind of heard that from the DA's association and hating crime victims. Um, You know, even uh, prominent folks like Sheriff Alex Villanueva use that language against Gascon. You know, LAPD Chief uh, Michael Moore, I should should point out, by contrast, has, has, has expressed concerns about Gascon's, you know, dumping enhancements but has avoided that kind of vitriol. Uh, Gascon's policy of no longer sending prosecutors to parole hearings uh, also attracted a lot of attention. Um, And of course, uh, you know, the lawsuit, uh, the LADA's office, you know, has done business largely the same way for a long time. And, you know, there's just, there's, there's been some tinkering along the way, but not the wholesale, wholesale changes that Gascon wants a, so, um, you know, the, there's a reason it's attracting so much heat. Uh, one criticism from even some of his pro- of his supporters is that he could have some buy-in from his prosecutors if he had, you know, I should say, uh, he, he could have you know, been more, he, he wouldn't have gotten off to such a difficult start if he had sought buy-in from his prosecutors, mm, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and 
Um, you know, but he wants these major changes in law enforcement, uh, which isn't easy to change. So he likely would have gotten serious flack, you know, whether he had instituted the changes on the first day or, or sought buy-in. But, yeah. but a lot of folks are saying he should have sought the buy-in. One more thing really quick about, I guess, going, this happened last week. He told the board of supervisors that he wants to appoint a special prosecutor to prosecute police officers involved in shootings. Tell us uh, a little bit about that. Well, he sent uh, a letter to the board asking to, to appoint former federal prosecutor Lawrence Middleton as that special prosecutor. One of the big things about that is he's he was with the U.S. Attorney's Office for 30 years and participated, was on the team that prosecuted uh, the LAPD officers who beat Rodney King. Uh, so so he's a kind of a high profile appointment. Gascon has said that, he, you know, he, he has signaled that he wants probably prosecutions in four past shootings involving officers with the LAPD, Long Beach, Gardena, and Torrance Police Department. So that dates back as far as 2013. And he wants to look at another 600, review another 600. So this is going to be another area that's going to uh, generate a lot of controversy. Anything else really quick we should know about George Gascon? Uh, he's going to generate a lot of news. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I think... I. Th- I think that, you know, really this debate about his policies is is kind of a fight or a debate about, you know, I've said the soul of the of L.A.'s criminal justice system. Yeah. It can't be overstated. Eh? That's uh, Frank Stoltz, KPCC's criminal justice correspondent. Uh, Frank, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, more Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and available most places where you find your podcast, Sammy Martinez. Time now for the latest installment in our Race in L.A. series. In it, we ask Angelinos how race and identity shape their day-to-day lives. The essays, written by both community contributors and L.A.ist staffers, are published each and every week. And the hope is that these stories fuel meaningful, authentic conversations about our lived experiences as of a certain race or ethnicity. This week, contributor Sybil Azor shares her essay titled Claiming My Dignity on a San Fernando Valley Street. I'm a black, biracial, married mom in my 40s. I am not a threat. But a couple of weeks ago, somebody made me feel like one. I was two blocks away from my home in an upper middle class Sherman Oaks neighborhood passing out flyers, raising awareness about an upcoming election. I had paused on one side of the street to post on social media, standing adjacent to an unassuming house in front of a wall of hedges. Just then, a white, blonde, middle-aged woman pushing a questionably small pink stroller caught my attention as she came near. I smiled behind my mask and asked, Is there a baby or a dog in there? A dog, she answered cautiously as she disappeared down her driveway. 
A few seconds later, she appeared again. Are you waiting for someone? She probed. And before I could stop myself, a river of qualifiers rushed out of my mouth. No, I should have stopped there, but I didn't. I'm passing out flyers to spread the word about a local election to elect delegates to the California Democratic Party, and I'm dropping flyers at houses with Biden signs, I explained. It's a small election that not a lot of people know about, so I'm just spreading the word. Just then, her pint-sized Maltese pup popped its head out of the stroller. Oh, I used to have a Maltese, I said brightly. They're great dogs. What I really meant was, I'm just like you. There's nothing to see here. The woman sized me up one final time, apparently determining that I wasn't much of a threat after all. Well, good luck, she replied, her lips tight with judgment. Thanks, I smiled again from behind my mask, watching her retreat behind her property line. I published my social media post, put my phone in my fanny pack, and continued on my way. Armed with only a stack of glossy flyers and a pink marker, I started to feel like I'd been assaulted. That unsettled feeling in the pit of my stomach began to grow. Was I overreacting? Or were my spidey senses, honed by a lifetime of microaggressions, right on target? So I asked myself the question, the litmus test that never fails to reveal reality. Would she have left me alone if I were white? What is most disturbing to me is that I answered so swiftly, so masterfully, code switching to the whitest version of myself to prove that I had a right to be there, revealing just how colonized even the most enlightened of us are. As I canvassed the neighborhood, I penned a kindly note on the back of each flyer and placed them under doormats, careful to appear as benign as possible. Happy New Year! Please request a ballot and vote. Your neighbor, Sybil. But as I walked, the gnawing seed of discomfort in my belly blossomed into a flowering rage. Birkenstocks out of gas, my feet started to ache as I rehashed the conversation in my head. Why did I feel the need to answer her? Why did I feel the need to respond to her so quickly, so completely, so gently? Are you waiting for someone? What I should have said was, no. Plain and simple. I was on city property, wearing a boho shirt, a mask, and a sensible sweater. No, I'm not here to threaten you. No, I'm not here to swindle you. And no, I don't need to answer your loaded question. The following day, I watched as the privilege of whiteness was on full display in the form of protesters turned rioters turned terrorists, forcing their way into the U.S. Capitol, most escaping with barely a scratch among them. And the phrase came alive again. It began in my head, was affirmed by social media, and then trickled out of the mouths of journalists and pundits. If those had been black people, in search around, they wouldn't have made it out of their alive conclusion. In the months after the 2016 election, the neighborhood that was once my comfort zone suddenly felt less safe. I looked over my shoulder a little more, counted which of my friends would climb in the foxhole with me, and feared that the progress we had made had been erased overnight. 
As a person of color who inhabits mostly white spaces most of the time, I'm adept at the type of understated vigilance it takes to occupy the double consciousness necessary to be black in this nation. And just as W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in 1897, the same remains true today. Quote, The Negro is born with a veil and a gifted second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no self-consciousness but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others. Close quote. Ain't that the truth? And no matter how evolved I am, how self-assured I am, there's always a moment, every day, sometimes every minute, that tries to put me back in my place. In this case, an encounter with a woman pushing a dog in a pink stroller. Since my interaction with the dog lady, I've pledged to prioritize my dignity. I don't owe it to anyone to make them feel safe, to perform my college degree or display my in-group membership card. I understand that this will take time and that I must deprogram a deeply embedded impulse to survive. But I also understand that rejecting this impulse won't always be possible because America. In the meantime, as this country grapples for ownership of its collective identity, may we all check our biases, mind our business, and let a Black Valley girl go about her day. That's contributor Sybil Azor. You can read her full essay at LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. All right, if you missed any part of Take Two, you can find it uh, wherever you get your podcasts. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. We're also on social media on Twitter at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. That's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next. Hey. It's Brian, the host of the How to LA podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of LA's indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.